You're good. Welcome to another episode of Don't Sleep on This Podcast. I'm very excited for this episode. I think that's the third time in a row I've said that. Um, our guest today is no other than Mr. Malik, Colin Malik, uh, one of me and Pierre's favorite teachers, most influential teachers we had at River City. Um, Malik, go ahead and introduce yourself. <laughs> wow, Nick. Thank you so much. I really appreciate uh, that warm intro, and I'm really super glad to be here. I was uh, super excited when you told me that oh, you, you got some really cool gig going on, and, and then when you told me who you're doing it with, I was even even more impressed. <laughs> we both were excited. Once we once we had an idea of who we could have, and then we said our teacher, I was like, oh, yeah. It was that light bulb yeah. moment. Yeah, exactly. Like, like, we were, yeah, we exactly those people. We were sitting across from each other right here, and we went, Malik. <laughs> mm-hmm. We brainstormed in this room, and we were like, exactly, that's what we need to do. At, well, like, the fact that I came to your minds is just, you know, it, it, that's a, such a great blessing, and I appreciate that so much. And we appreciate Very you. happy to be here today, guys. Thank Heck you. Heck yeah, we're happy to have you. Absolutely. All right, so um, give us a little bit of summary of your life. Um, where do you grow up? Things like that. Okay, yeah, sure, for sure. I, um, I'm a military brat. Mm-hmm. I, um, I have a father who was um, in the Army. He served in Nam, and he was um, he was in the Air Force for 20, 20 plus years. So I always moved around, but I was born in California, so I'm a native Californian. Um, lived in Fresno for a while, and then we moved to Sunnyvale and moved around. Um, and both of my family sides are from California too. So ended up staying in California for maybe five or so years, and then uh, moved to Texas. And so I've kind of been around the Midwest and also uh, over to Illinois. My parents got divorced when I was. In my formative years, 10, 11 or so, it was kind of weird, you know. Tough Divor- age. Divorce as a kid is yeah. always weird, uh-huh. you know. Um, went back and forth the country with my mom because she was a teacher, and so she ended up in Chico for a while. Oh. Yeah, so I was up in the northern part, and it was always just me and her. And then they tried it, they tried it again. It failed. Um, and then I ended up landing in Woodland. Landed in Woodland and um, got kicked out. <laughs> ended up living with my dad. And, um, let's see, just kind of wanting not to move anymore because mm-hmm. I'm an only child. My father was, uh, the, the youngest of four and, um, he got ripped out of Chicago. He was, uh, from South, South, South side Chicago and his parents moved to California in his senior year. And it was getting to that point where I was you know, worried about that because he was about to pick up Lieutenant Colonel. He's going to get promoted, um, and he was going to move to Texas again. And I was like, oh, shit, what's going to happen? My, my dad's pretty rad. He retired for me. And so I was able to stay in Woodland. I finished up in Woodland, um, worked for a couple years at a factory job that I figured I'd hate and didn't want to be there any, anymore. And a guy by the name of Jim Whitaker uh, told me to go see the world. Nothing's happening. You know, go to Thailand, go to Asia, go check out the world. He's like, you'll have a great time. You'll make some friends and see some amazing places. And the world was a peaceful place. Yeah. This was 1999. I'm like, well, shit, all right. (laughs) You know, my girlfriend's dad at the time was a Marine, and he was uh, in the CHP, so I had a lot of respect for him, and I was big into hunting at the time. And he really? Went to, yeah. I never knew you were hunting. Yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, I used to uh, roam the hills up in um, uh, Northern California um, around Copco Lake and uh, Klamath River. 
Nice. We'd go elk and deer hunting oh, and, and pig and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Oh, that's good. That's awesome. And duck. Yeah, yeah I, I was, like duck hunting. I, like I was actually hunting. more of the duck hunter mind where I wanted to, because uh, you'd sit out there and, and sit in the duck blind, drink coffee, and wait for them to come to you. Yeah. I'm like, this this bullshit of walking around the hills you is not for it. me. Yeah. I'm done with this. Um, so I would go hunting with him, and he, he was a scout sniper in the Marine Corps, and he was quite influential for me. And I looked up to him and said, all right, screw it. I'll join the Marines. I told my dad. My dad was like, why don't you join the Air Force? <laughs> I go, well, I don't, I don't know. What, well, that's what I went into. I go, okay. He goes, well, join the Air Force. Um, they have the best amenities. They got the best stuff. And, and it's the, the easiest. Don't you know that the Marines are the hardest? I go, well, I guess that's why I'm joining because yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm a knucklehead. <laughs> because I don't want something that's easy. And uh, no chick has ever said like, oh, wow, look at that guy in that sexy Air Force uniform. Like, yeah. That's not exactly how the story goes, folks. <laughs> Marines, you have the best uniform. Yeah, we got they, the best uniform. The best uniform. <laughs> so I um, got the hell out of Dodge. Ended up in San Diego for five and a half years and two wars um, in the Marine Corps, fixing helicopters. Fixing helicopters for five and a half years. So we did a tour over in Okinawa. We did Iraq and Kuwait. We can talk about those, too, if we want to. Um, came back, 2005, you know, got the hell out. It was crazy because, you know, watch the towers come down. Mm-hmm. And like I was like, oh well, shit. I guess we're going to be in a war mm-hmm. soon. You so know, I knew George Bush. You record. joined before nine eleven. Yeah. Okay. And it was great. Like for the first year and a half, it was super, super chill. Like just practice missions, practice not doing shit. You know, go hang out in San Diego and gas lamp, and you know, go to the beach every weekend. It's like, okay, this works. Yeah. <laughs> you know, those towers come down and. Everything. We were in a war. You knew right away? I knew right yeah. away. I knew absolutely right away. When they figured out, less, when they figured out air quotes, mm-hmm. uh, less than a day that Osama bin Laden was going to be the one that was going to have this hung around his neck. Yeah. And, and I knew I knew right away. I was like, I, we, ain't, we, we were in Iraq and we're, we were in Afghanistan in less than a month. Mm-hmm. October, 11, uh, October 10th, I think, was the day that they were literally in, in country in 2001. That's crazy. And I, and I knew. I was like, well, <laughs> powers of beer are going to try to grab some oil. Mm-hmm. That's just like where there's freedom, we need to find some oil. So yeah. I'm like, yeah, we're going to be in Iraq. Mark my words. And, and jarheads in my unit would look at me like, you're crazy. We're not going around. I was like, fucking watch. Watch. Watch right. this shit. I'm not making this up, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it happened. That's got to be a pretty surreal feeling, though. Knowing that you're going into I would, enemy territory in a way, but just leaving everything you've known behind. What, like, what is that feeling? Like, what were you feeling, I guess? Wow. That's um, – that you, you get – you talk to some of the older guys. You try to pick their brain. Gunny Anderson and, like, Gunny Delmage and some older guys. You'd like – what's it like? Because they – a couple of them, you know, had gone to – Grenada. Mm-hmm. A couple of them had done some work before, and a couple of them had even, you know, been around in 89, 90. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, they were really old, salty dogs, but these guys had been in a war, or at least a wartime environment. So you tried to pick their brains and look to their leadership. But I mean, <clears throat> Marines are just going to go out there and do the best job we can and kick ass and, and work as hard as we, we had to and go, go try to accomplish the mission. It was crazy. I was actually talking to um, a teacher yesterday who was stressing 
about COVID and ready to throw in the towel and kind of like, you know, th- this is just horrible. I hate it. And I, and I told her that story of, you know, the time I was sitting in a bathroom with an M16 in my mouth, <laughs> you know, getting ready to blow my brains out because I've been in the desert for so long and because my girlfriend had left me. Oh, and God. cheated on me and like was like threatening all this this just baggage of garbage on me and I was like really low and I realized that that, that wasn't that was stupid like why should I kill myself over this dumb bitch mm-hmm. I can't stand her now right like I couldn't couldn't believe that she would do that to somebody over there so I was like you know what I don't I'm not gonna rest on that anymore so I let that go um and, and and it was just like you're in a mate you're you're in a daze you're in a you're in a endless cycle of eat sleep shit work and watch the planes leave and watch yeah. them come back and it was a running joke it was a running joke oh we're leaving in three weeks and we got told that like Iraq kicked off in February. We were we left we left like four days before Valentine's Day. It kicked off two days before um, St. Patrick's Day mm-hmm. in two thousand two, and we were or was it three? I, I blend the years. I'd look at a book if I need to, but and they they were telling us by April, by April, you'll be out of here by May. Okay, now it's June, and it was a running joke because we're like, we're never leaving this place. <laughs> Welcome to your new home, right? The sandbox permanently. Mm-hmm. So it, it, I don't it's it's an interesting correlation to covid and this environment of isolation in that like I had marines and I had buddies and we could go, you know, lift tires and and do like stupid stuff, you know, but you couldn't leave. You didn't know when it was ending and that was that was kind of like my 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 claim with her was like it's okay. It's going to suck. We don't know when it's ending, but yeah. you know, you can still go order macunis. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah, can order true. a pizza. Like it's not that bad, and it's bad, but it's not that bad. Yeah, and you just have to figure. It, to me, is just <clears throat> it just it causes you to be more creative with your time, and it causes you to think outside the box of what you normally have to do. I'm, I know that I'm not everyone, but I'm still pretty much striving throughout the whole thing. It's it sucks, but it's like we're all in this together. It's. Other than you being a Marine, it was a select few of you guys have to do that. We're all in this together. We all know this sucks. Yeah. We want it to be over as soon as possible. People are looking at my leadership, and it's kind of daunting, and I'm just trying to reassure them that, like, you know, just keep keep the course and try, you know, wash your hands, wear a mask, and yeah. look just back. Just do what you can do. Just I mean, do what yeah. you can we do. We are living in yeah. history. It's not rocket science. Mm-hmm. It's not. This country's gone through pandemics before, and it, but that's, you know, that's a... I'm sure we're going to talk about that too. And the, the lacking history lessons in this country's memory and mindset. Oh yeah, no, we got a whole, literally a whole segment for that. Yeah. Um, so when you were in Iraq, was teaching even in your mind at that time? I don't know. I, probably not because it's interesting. I come from a family of educators. Mm-hmm. Um, my uncle is a professor of sociology at Boston College. Uh-huh. Both of my cousins teach um, K eight. Um, and my mom was a teacher too, but I never thought I would go down this path. What really led me to teaching, um, was an amazing history teacher, uh, from Sac City 
Carl Chabold. And, you know, I was just, so I got out in 2005. I knew that I couldn't waste my time and I wasn't going to just sit around. So go to college, GI Bill, mm-hmm. use that money, mm-hmm. use it, right? Had no idea what I was going to do. And it wasn't until I took Chabold's class and subsequent classes, like the guy was a master storyteller. And it's kind of like how I kind of saw myself as like, ooh, I would love to know more because it was on this big kick of, trying to find truth, trying to organize and understand truth. And um, I I felt that the path of history was the best place to try to explore that and understand about the world and what was happening and just the world in general. And so, you know, I fell in love with history and then I ended up at UC Davis still pursuing history. And then I was like, well, now I'm graduating. Okay. (laughs) I can do one of two things. I can sell my soul and become a lawyer or I can, you know, become a teacher and, and I was like, well, I like young people, and it's cool, and te- I love having summers off. Don't get me wrong. It's not really summers off. I mean, I'm still working. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I was like, well, screw it. And so I I threw my hat in that, and I, I never was unsure. Like, I meet new teachers or know new teachers sometimes, and they're like, oh, are they going to like me? Or are they going to not like me? I'm like, that's the wrong way to go about it. You just got to be yourself and yeah. be authentic. And then build those relationships. Not every kid's going to – you're not going to win every kid over. But be yourself first and foremost. Like if you're doing this for any other reason other than that, you're in it for the wrong reason. Mm -hmm. And I think that's like the biggest thing for a teacher in order to relate to students is if – you can tell – students can tell when teachers aren't being themselves. Like when they're putting this mask on. And I think that's why I – kind of butted heads with you at first but then we really got along was because i could tell that you were different and it wasn't the same kind of authority even though you did show authority in your classroom it wasn't the same type of authority that i was used to in my past classes but then as i got older i started to respect that because i learned that you were actually putting yourself into your teaching and that's a lot especially when a high school kid is seeing that um because it shows you love what you do and there's teachers that have i mean at river city that don't like what they do you could just tell you guys sniff out bullshit quicker than oh, any absolutely. young people sniff out the bs so quick and um i don't know i felt like being a marine like you're naturally you learn how to lead you know how to lead mm-hmm. but you also one of the the ethos is you know mission first and then take care of your troops and i just always looked at my students as like my my little my little jarheads, you know, they're not obviously, but they're my classroom. They're my kids. You know, it's my job to protect them, and mm-hmm. it's my job to lead them by example. And you know, I took a lot of the Marine Corps ethics that I got and um, grafted them very easily into teaching. And when I see new teachers um, struggle with classroom management, it's because they don't have that confidence that, you know, being in the military will give you. Mm-hmm. And it's not a dig at them. It's just like how I am and how I roll mm-hmm. in my yeah, classroom. A, too. A lot of people go to the military to get that structure. Some people don't have it. And some people just live the rest of their life without having structure. And, you know, and I become a teacher and then you, as a kid, you kind of see it. And then it's like, I won't say it, yeah, like it's, you could just tell, I mean, like you said, you can, you can really sniff that out. Like some people just don't have structure in their life. And they, they don't see it, but we can. And then when you see that as a teacher, you're just like, shit, have to go to this person's <laughs> class. Exactly. You know, you, I'm not, I, me being in your class, uh, I think I, really for me, it just was history was now I'm getting better with people's names. Like, I think now because I try to, but history was always hard for me because I would mix up names and times. And, uh, but other than that, it's same thing as him. It, 
Ah, uh, no, this teacher actually cares. He cares. No, yeah. he's he's trying his best to make sure that we get the education that we need. And he, he, he you're passionate about history, and that was pretty cool. Because you would go from class to class, and everything was different. There was all the only only thing I really hated was my first period, which was French in my freshman year, and I was just like shit. But never going to history, even though I wasn't a, a big fan of history class, I was like, oh, this is going to be cool. It's Mr. Malik's class, you know? Like, we're, it's going to be chill. The homies are in there. We're going to learn something. And it wasn't that bad. So I think you did a good job, especially incorporating your uh, structure that you learned from the Marines into it. Well, they don't buy into, you know, how you organize or how you do things. You You can lose it very easily. You know, I try to be hard it's 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 all it's all show mm-hmm. you know until i can get them to understand this is how it operates you know the the authoritarian all that is to all that sets in motion is getting you to focus and get to where we need to go so that later on down the road we can have good conversations yeah. so that we can be organized and you can be productive and do all those um those skill sets that come with social science too mm-hmm. you know cuz i can't i can't just sit there and show movies day in and day mm-hmm. out although you know, every everybody deserves a movie now and then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Good history movie, too. Don't get me wrong. You showed the best history movies. <laughs> best movies in general. I try. I mean, I really... One of the things from the Marine Corps was that, you know, you were around so many different personalities and types. And I felt that, like, you had to have... You had to have a broad spectrum of understanding of people you know i knew guys from louisiana from new york Mm -hmm. from uh, wisconsin california oxnard california Mm -hmm. texas you know and you meet so many different characters and personalities and beliefs and styles that like it really makes you a lot more tolerable and tolerant and i think that kind of fit well into understanding history yeah from a global perspective which is my kind of angle and that there's so many different people out there. Like you, you, you have so many stories to trace and understand through that lens. And you know, with such a great diverse population at River City, it kind of is a really nice fit and comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the reasons I'm actually pursuing political science is because you had a conversation with me about. I've always wanted to ask you this, and I never did. Um, ask it about you. Uh, you were at the time. I wasn't as liberal as I am now. But you have that John F. Kennedy um, quote in your classroom about being a liberal and what it means to be a liberal. And he's like, yeah, then if that's what that means, I'm a liberal. And you told me that. And I was <laughs> not even going to lie to you. I was pretty high that day. But I was like, man, that that changed everything. That changed all my perceptions into what I believe. But I want to know how you came out of the military so liberal. Because, I mean, it's usually the opposite. It's usually um, you go into the military and you're like, yeah, uh, patriotism. USA, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I will tell you that I was always the it – was, it was crazy. I was the donkey in a shop full of elephants, mm-hmm. and I've always characterized it that way. I was the lone blue donkey in a room full of uh, Republicans, oftentimes. And I got ridiculed in 2004. I got ridiculed in 2001, you know, Bush v. Gore and then Bush and Kerry, um, you know. And there were guys that were jarring me hard over, why are you voting for Kerry, that traitorous bastard? I'm like, dude, that's a, a Vietnam veteran, dude. <laughs> what the fuck is wrong with you? Um, what is your problem? Like, do you know who the guy attacking him really is? He's uh-huh. a patsy. Come on. Um, and 
These guys were so in, uh, inundated and drinking the Kool-Aid sometimes that all they cared about was a pay raise. And yeah. in 2003, 2004, Bush's big thing was like to try to kick money to the pay raise. Yeah. And they're like, I'm voting him because he's going to give me an extra 2.5%. Like, motherfucker, for the amount of hours you work and for the fact that you might die, you're willing to do that? For like, 2. this 5? guy is yeah. – like, that's your principle? Like, that's all it took? It was a little bit of money? I didn't get it. And to just hear some of these guys uh, talk sometimes was like, there's a lot of gay bashing. Um, there wasn't, like, I never felt like super overt racism because my staff NCO was a Jew. He was Jewish and we loved him to death. Um, my gunnery sergeant was gina- gigantic brother who, you know, looked like Mike Tyson and was swole, like there was no way you were going to ever <laughs> display anything looking or resembling racism around him. He would pound you into the ground. I worked with guys who were from Great Britain. Um, who, who This guy was a British Marine and got out and became one of the, hard, the, the hardest badass gunnery sergeants in our unit, you know, and he'd always... A devil dog, and he had the British accent with that shit, and that shit was so funny. <laughs> and you're like, oh shit, I'm about to get locked up. I'm not a gunny, I'm, I'm a gunnery sergeant. And I'm like, holy shit, are we getting fish and chips too? What is going on? <laughs> <laughs> and like, you work around those people, and like, so the racism was never there. And, um, but the, 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 the hard on for guns and the hard on to go, you know, fuck those Arabs and let's fucking kill them all. And blah, 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 blah. I just never got that. I never understood. Well, it's like, still there. Yeah. Oh, my God. I was raised very tolerant. My mom was a teacher, like I said. My dad, after he got out of Vietnam, when he went into the Air Force, he was a nurse for 20 years, for crying out loud. Mm-hmm. So he never wanted to pick up another weapon ever again. Like He spent his remainder of his time helping people mm-hmm. and healing, not hurting. You know, so that ethic kind of was instilled in me from very young age and i knew that my dad was in the military but he helped sick people Mm -hmm. you know my mom would you know was a humanities teacher in eighth grade so like those ethics went back really far and i i would butt heads with people on that shit and um uh, because that kennedy quote meant so much to me like i didn't even realize that quote until i got out but i was like yeah i guess i kind of always have just thought of the other and the minority and the people that, you know, why, who cares what some ritual white guy's talking about? Like, what about people who are actually, you know, disenfranchised? Or yeah, those people are from- fine. Yeah. yeah, those people are well, well, well off. And that's what this, like, just saying they're well off. They don't have to, they're off, they're off of the, the perimeter that we're in every day. There's way many more, uh, you know, middle class or lower middle class than there is rich people. And it's like, you want to vote for something that doesn't necessarily benefit you. All right. It's mind boggling. Yeah. I, I always am mind boggled by what their perspective is. And not in a disrespectful way, not mm-hmm. like I'm trying to slam on them, but I, you got to talk. I like got to talk to these people. Yeah. You got to have the conversation. Out. Yeah. Well, how does this, uh-huh. why, what is happening in your synapses that you like, that's rational. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, 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 I, yeah, it's a mind blow. So you think it's mostly background more than anything? Or do you think the military kind of makes people that way too? Uh, you know, it's weird because, like I said, there are Latinos, Chicanos, Hispanics, mm-hmm. blacks, Asians, white guys, 
from so many diverse backgrounds, and we all managed to work together mm-hmm. uh, and get along. And you know, I don't know if it's just the situation and that you don't really, you know, you're not going out on a hate crime spree or some bullshit like that. Um, you're an arm of the government. Yeah. Um, but I think, I think that culture. I think the military lends itself a lot of times to young men who are impressionable, who um, who might have racist or uh, misogynistic or bigamist tendencies or racial biases, and um, it can be a breeding ground too. And so they come in with their own perspective on that too, and they'll bring it in um, because you know why not ha- why not get some military training so when I go back to you know, BFE in the hills, you know, I can practice my hate a little better. Yeah. I mean, that's a very real thing. Yeah. It's absolutely. So the the tend towards liberalism, um, and it's never a dirty word, it's because liberal to me always meant liberty. And, like, if you study philosophy or you study the essence of the word or you look at um, uh, what it means to be liberal – um, it, it, it changes how it gets. It's a big shift mm-hmm. in thinking. Being liberal is actually like one of the most tolerant things you can, you can do. do. You, yeah. You're really super tolerant, actually, mm-hmm. when you're liberal. Um, it, it was a shift for me, and it, it's like, but that doesn't play in. It, it doesn't play on an MSNBC soundbite, or it doesn't play on a Fox no. News. In Fox News, it's a demonization mm-hmm. exactly, and and it's uh, working, and a straw man, mm-hmm. right. Well, anything anything that might benefit society in this country nowadays is just labeled. Just throw socialist on it. Yeah, yeah. which is yeah, mind-numbingly stupid. Yeah, I hear it a lot. <laughs> you hear it a lot. I, we argued with someone that we went to high school with, and he was it was argument over all lives matter. He's like, so why do you, why do you guys want this and this and this and that? You guys just want to live in a socialist uh, society? And I was like, wait, what? Do you not realize how imperfect that sounds? And also just we're asking for the same basic human rights that you have as a Caucasian male. And I, he, I guess he might have been Mexican, but um, what does that make that socialist? Because I want basic human rights. The the, the, the leap in logic is astounding uh-huh. well, that's, I in mean, its stupidity and validity. <laughs> even with how we label socialism in America, I mean, you can make the argument that healthcare is a basic human right. I mean, it, I think it is. It should be, and, but it's not. And when... But exactly, you throw socialism on that, and everyone and everyone's like, oh yeah, no, no, that's actually a good idea to not make it a basic human right. It makes dollars, and that's the reason why. And it, it, so it's easy to label those things and have people hate it, so they don't vote for it. And then the people behind the scenes is like, haha, I get to make the money off of it anyway. Well, I mean, me, Kaiser has no problem backing political candidates that mm-hmm. allow them to write the medical terminology and yep. bills in this fucking yeah. country. Wake exactly. up to that. Yeah. I mean, uh, Kaiser's been doing that. Uh, for for well over forty years, mm-hmm. they've been writing their own rules to the game, and uh, excuse me for you know wanting a nicer life where we have more time off or where you don't have to worry about being bankrupt in this country yeah. after you got sick or yeah. I don't know a government that's responsive to the needs of its people and there's actual fucking oversight. Yeah, yeah, and I think I mean people don't really realize how capitalism and socialism can go hand-to-hand. I mean, it works in Sweden. It works in the Scandinavian countries. Um, and having someone constantly healthy or healthy that's part of your workforce kind of works. I mean, I'm, that sounds pretty good to me. 
it, it's a lot of abuse and misuse, and I think on the behalf of large corporate America, it's a fear of uh, losing control. Because to me, what this always has been an issue of is control. Mm-hmm. Um, because when you're free from those shackles, mentally, financially, you don't have to you don't have to worry. You, you, we're locked into a system right now where if you if you get really sick, you could end up fucking homeless and yeah, bankrupt. Yeah, yeah. And that shackles people to buy into the to the narrative or the line that, you know, they want want you to understand and see rather than being like, Jesus, this is a basic human right that they should have a roof, affordable housing, uh, uh, medical access that doesn't cost an arm and a leg, mm-hmm. and that, you know, the government should be transparent. Like, why wouldn't you want those things? And why is that so revolutionary? Just, yeah, and it's not. It's not. It's not. It's not. They. Um, I love watching the um, the democracy index and the liberty freedom index that comes out every year, and like watching the United States. Well, I don't love watching the United States drop, but watching us drop further and further and further down the tiers into like the teens and the the low twenties is like astounding. Here yeah. we are, wrapped in a flag, talking about patriotism. Blah and how blah great blah. We are. And yeah. the, and and we're slipping down the actual liberty index. It's crazy for me sometimes. With and education-wise, it keeps slipping. <laughs> keep slipping education-wise. <laughs> I'm uh, sure Betsy DeVos will fix all that, uh, right? Jeez. Sheesh. Um, all right, so let's go ahead and go back. Went on a little tangent there. I like it. I love uh, going on tangents. Oh, no, absolutely. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast, these are two of my favorite human beings. <laughs> These guys were amazing students and human so beings. Sweet. Likewise, thank you. I actually thought of the JFK. I, so Chris Stafford put up a um, yeah. He, he did a Kennedy quote, uh-huh. and um, I actually want to do an outline picture of Kennedy, like maybe from the podium when he was giving that speech. Yeah. And I'm going to do that. I I try to do an art installation every year, whether it's the the two murals in my class or the um, the Starry Night or the one coming up the stairs or just new quotes and stuff. I try to do one every year, and this year I'm like, I can't. I I don't know how am I going to yeah. do this without students. Is this on me? Exactly. <laughs> um. So we talked about this a little bit before we were recording, but um, so how's virtual learning? Um. <sighs> what are your thoughts on it? I mean. How is it affecting you as a teacher? I don't think uh, we get a lot of media coverage on what's going on, but it's more from a student aspect. Um, but people don't really focus on how teachers are being affected by this. I had just had a conversation with a peer about teacher mental health. Mm-hmm. And, like, you have teachers working 13, 14 hours at a time per day on the weekends um, trying to make meaningful lessons, make um, quality instruction, um, to, to try to bridge the learning loss that occurred on March 13th. Um, and it's stressful, and it's, it's horrific, and it's not fun. I did not ever get into teaching to sit behind a computer. Absolutely. And it's been, it's been difficult. Um, I still kind of, I'm doing my sage on the stage and, you know, trying to make jokes and, and still presenting my lectures as I would. I'm not super technologically savvy. I can upload stuff and do the, the basics and, you know, I'm experimenting with, you know, the screencastifies or the, the Ed puzzle stuff. Like I've made a few of those. So, you know, I'm 
dipping my feet into those new technological waters. But the thing is, is that none of those are a replacement. Mm-hmm. And none of those are actually um, things that you would do in a virtual learning model. When I went to um, teacher training, the School of Education at UC Davis, anything that was virtual or online or even accessible through technology was was meant to be typically done in the classroom, too. Like, you go grab a Chromebook, and we yeah. all do this together <clears throat> here right now, right? And so the mo- the mindset of, like, oh, you can take all these cool tools and you can just use them still, like, bro, that's not what they were designed for, and that's not virtual learning. Like, people sign up for Phoenix or online, you know, they do that knowing what they're getting into, mm-hmm. and, and those teachers are specifically trained how to teach virtual learning. So the learning curve's been steep and horrific. Uh, obviously, a lot of K-5 teachers are crying, too, because... Oh, yeah. What do you, okay? You know, how do you tell an eight-year-old to log in and remember their password? I mean, dude, come on, they're working still on having colors problems now. Yeah, they're working on colors, bro. <laughs> come on, this is not right, right? So, the um, it's been horrible, and the kids know it. the 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 content doesn't change. The environment is totally changed, and I think you had mentioned something about the social aspect and the mm-hmm. socialization is. It's just horrible to, to know that, like, yeah, they're going through this and they don't get that interaction. And they don't get that, that friend time or just that, that peer-to-peer interaction inside of a classroom. Uh, socialization is a huge part of child development, too. Oh, big time. It's a huge component of it. And right now it's just been stunted, and that's just horrible. I used to uh, talk to my, my dad, and sometimes my mom used to bring this up. I go, do you realize uh, who's really raising us? Uh, it's uh, we get raised as we're at school. Like we only see you, the parents, probably you know four hours out of the day, and now the parents are realizing, oh shit, I have to see these kids, you know, basically twenty four seven now, and that's not a knock on being a parent, uh, but it's just now you're really really watching your and your in your child, especially in high school, it has some sort of personality that they're already developing so when you're seeing them you're seeing all their tactics and their ways of learning and everything else their personality it's kind of an eye-opener but also it just not being able i learned a lot of, of myself in high school i couldn't imagine having to do it at home yeah. and uh i'm actually kind of happy my parents didn't allow me to do homeschool I, I wanted to do what was it called uh the kids that used to come one day out of the week I'm so glad I didn't do independent study. Independent study. Yeah. Uh, it's, I couldn't imagine doing that for me. Now I'm just like a social butterfly. I talk a lot a lot more and stuff like that, and that's all thanks to high school. Yeah, I learned a lot of my social skills from mm-hmm. high school. A lot of social skills. I think you picked up on something that's important is that how impactful the teachers are yeah. and how much they matter. Mm-hmm. Um, because I know teachers are stressed, and I know that they're doing their best as they can, and that's always our focus too is is our students and, you know, parenting them in a sense some of these you know if they come from a single family household or a single parent household or single guardian or foster um this might be the only adult interaction and academic interaction they have you know ever 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 again in some cases you know not everybody's cut out for college and not everybody goes to college Mm -hmm. um and that's what makes you know my mission that much more important really and the, and doing it in this environment, I mean, I sit in my classroom because I, 
for one, I consider myself a professional, and I was like, I need to be at my job. Yeah. And my job is in my classroom, and so I'm going to teach from there. You know, I had all these ideas, oh, I'll, I'll lecture, and the camera will watch me lecture, and I'll be at the board and do all this stuff, and it didn't quite pan out, and um, I ended up, I'm, I'm ending up sitting at my desk, because I, I can present my screen, so they would normally see it anyways, mm-hmm. you know? So, but now I find myself just stuck in a chair for six hours a day, yeah. you know, trying to take walks in between class to, you know, keep my... Because you, you remember my classes. I, yeah. I would walk around mm-hmm. all period, yeah. you know, and checking and helping and doing that you sort of You used to take thing. the class on a walk. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so I, I feel for the, um, the younger, younger grades a lot. High school students, as much as they're they're missing the socialization aspect, it's the under eights and the the you know K five and below that I have big concerns mm-hmm. about, like what kind of damage this is doing. Overall. You think like educational wise? You mean like, um, like brain development? Wise? Brain development okay. wise, also education wise, because um, from what I'm understanding and hearing, a lot of the a lot of the district is emphasizing the wrong things. Rather than just maintaining the uh, social connectivity and the, uh, God, what's the word I'm looking here for? Uh, social capacity and relational capacity mm-hmm. that they asked us to do as teachers. They really focus on, you know, trying to interact and, and create that relationship with your students in the first two weeks. And I did. I already do that. But I did it, like, even more than I would normally do and, and trying to build that so that, you know, there's not a disconnect. Yeah. And it's hard, though. I mean, a vaccine would be great. I don't want to teach like this. And I tell them every day. I tell my kids I love them because I do. I don't love them in, like, a physical way. I love them emotionally mm-hmm. and educationally. And I love them as a, a responsible uncle who's looking out for you kind of way. You know, way. The, the funny thing is I read something. I hate always saying, oh, I'll say this on Twitter, but it's the case. And there was a sign where it says, I could tell a stranger I love him because there's people who hate strangers. Like, just simple as that. I think about it all the time because uh, I write a lot of things that I write. I always put I love you. Well, because simply if it's someone that can hate me and that don't know me, I can tell them I love them. So I, I don't think it's weird for a teacher to be like, hey, I love you. That's fine. Yeah. I, th- I feel like it, we should normalize people being able to say I love you even to strangers. I nor- d- I try to normalize it and I try to use a we because mm-hmm. we as teachers, we love our students and yeah. we miss our students. And I've so- seen teachers cry when they know their students you know, are leaving them. It, I think one of the hardest things as being a teacher because you get this connection and you know you you're probably never going to see these kids again. Yeah. And it's just the truth of the matter. You know, sometimes some students don't come back and see their teachers again. But I know just it's like breaking up every year. Thinking of breaking up with something you <laughs> love every year and then have to keep going. And then, you know, you do it for 40 years. You're just like, shit, this is a great kid. I'm going to love that kid. Man, I love that kid. And you're never going to see him again. And they walk out. They walk out of your arms, you know. That's why I can't stick around after graduation. Like, I, I, I go home and cry mm-hmm. that night. I do. Every year, I go home and I let it out. And emotionally, it's like, it's done. It's over. It's washed off. It's like, it's like breaking up. It yeah. is. It's, it's horrible. Um, but it's part of the process. And Fogel actually helped me get over that. You know, my, my second year teaching, I'm like, man, we try so hard. And, da, 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 and we send them out in the world and <laughs> never know what's happening. And da, da, da. he's like, you got to just trust that, you know, you did the best you could mm-hmm. and you were awesome. And they loved you while they were here. And they're going to go out into the real world and, you know, do the best. And life is going to happen to them. Yeah. And when I thought about that, I was like, okay, that, that makes it 
a little more real and a little bit more manageable and palatable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I wouldn't be able to do it. No, like- I yeah, it crossed my mind. You know, when like as you get older and being out of high school, I had to start questioning myself because. I remember getting out. Of, I remember getting out of high school, graduating. I was like, "Yeah, fuck this. I'm going to Long Beach. I'm never coming back to West Sacramento again." And then I moved back, and I started thinking, "What if I became a teacher? Is it teach the I things that I like?" But then I go, "Shit, I couldn't imagine seeing some kid and being like, damn, that kid. I really, 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 really like that kid.' And now I don't have that, you know, connection with them because it sucks to have you know connections with the people you love and then that you just can't do anything about it it'd be weird see it's not weird because we invite you here but it'd be like kind you know oh shit like he wants to hang out with like you know things like that like you don't want to be the 30 year old dude that's asking some 17 year old kid to come over because you actually like him but these kids are leaving impressions on the teachers just as much as the teachers are leaving impressions on us and that's just the way it is missing that impact of the screen because it's it's not humanized i can't there's no way that i can really make a straight connection i mean there's some people that can but i personally can't make a connection with someone through a computer screen as much as i want to it's just not there the one that's interesting i love your word choice there dehumanization is that this is um one thing this virus is doing is conditioning us to be to be less interactive and have Mm -hmm. that dehumanization and I don't know um, what that might benefit, but I know that it's it's effective because look at how we've now managed and moved our lives. We moved our lives online all yep. the time. Don't have to we, go to an office. You don't have yep. to go into an office. And it's a, uh, it's a form of social conditioning to get us away from, in my opinion, our own true nature mm-hmm. and our own true self. Kind of nasty. in a mountain, you yeah. know, doing, looking at cool shit and trees like that's actually what humans you know do yeah um and and, like you get your entertainment online you watch your news online Uh, everything is staring at a fucking screen we're becoming more the robots than we're afraid of that robots yeah of (laughs) taking um over everything when you really think about it i I, uh it's interesting that you uh mentioned like you know outside of america sometimes people can live based off of just one wage and they can enjoy their family. They have, they, they're able to live life. And I go, shit, well, let me see what state outside of California that I can do that. And now, as I grow older, I go, it's not worth being here. I would rather get I mean, grow up knowing that I get to enjoy my family, my friends, and stuff like that. And simple as that. Like, I don't want to be conditioned to go into an office at 20, you know, uh, Six days, I don't know, six, five days out of the week. That doesn't sound, that doesn't sound fun. It doesn't sound like the rest of my life. I can't stand to think that's what life is offering me. I don't think that's the truth. And I wonder, like, now are kids realizing, like, there has to be something more than this. That's one thing I hope out of, like, out of this virus and out of us staying at home. Some, some kids are probably thinking, I either really like being at home or, you know, there just has to be some. There has to be some change in which way we work and the way we live in America, fighting for our lives just to have a roof over our head, some basic necessities. I hope that we can figure that out outside of this coronavirus. But yeah, it is making us more screen, screen time, screen time, screen time. You know, stare at this some more. Don't worry about what's going on outside. Screen time, screen time. But there's a whole ass civil war kind of breaking out right now but everyone's worried you can see it from a screen so now you don't even have to participate in yeah. it 
You don't have to go out and Mm-mm. be doing anything. You can just do it on a keyboard. Democracy still requires participation and mm-hmm. active participation. And as tragic as George Floyd's murder, because he was murdered, um, as tragic as that is, if Big George is, is, is noticing one thing that's happening in society right now is that this is this has caused awakening and a sea change of thought. Um, couple that to a global pandemic mm-hmm. that is that is clearly illustrating and highlighting and putting a fucking big bright light on inequity, inequality, whether racial, gender, or um, ideological, mm-hmm. um, with a, a, a minority in power. Um, the power structure of the elite is a minority. Yeah. Um, is is causing a sea change in thought and thinking. And if there's one thing that... It, one good thing out of that is that people are waking up to that. And that scares the power structure. Mm-hmm. That really fucking makes the power structure very nervous. Um, very French Revolution-esque. Uh-huh. Um, uh, where it's contain and control and suppress. Suppress assent, uh, dissent and opinion. And, and I'm... I'm I'm glad for the youth. I'm glad for the youth to be activated. I'm glad for the youth to recognize injustice and intolerance because they don't fucking put up with it. Mm-hmm. They do not. You know, I haven't had a Trump supporter student in my class be vocal in three years. You know, and these kids are they they are Funny all about is, they are all about shutting that shit down yeah. on their peers. They will not put up with that shit. We were there three years ago. Yep. That's what, when you said three years. I was like, "Wait, let me do the math real quick." <laughs> <laughs> Who was in that class? Yeah. <laughs> oh, you know him. I'm not going to throw him under the bus here, though. I, uh, yeah. <laughs> I have an idea. You, uh, you have an idea. Uh-huh. I got a couple ideas. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Especially as we get older, a lot of them are more and more joining that wagon. And I mean, as a democracy in a free country, as you should, and if you do it, to, sometimes to me, if you do it, if you can. Believe in the certain things for the right reasons. Go ahead. It's more of the ignorant stuff that is more like, dude. The facts that's, are there. You're yeah, exactly. The and it's also it's giving these people with these biases and the ignorances more of a uh, uh, a stage to put their ideas out. Whereas like before he was in there, these people were always racist, but now he's giving them the more confidence to be racist more vocally. It's okay to show your racism a little bit more overtly. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, that's that's the horrific part of that. Mm-hmm. Is that I was reading this interesting rip from The Nation, and they were talking about how um, people, they, they know he's wrong, and they know that what President Trump does, um, you know, might be controversial or unacceptable or bad even for them and their decisions. But the sick, sadistic part of it was that they get off knowing that it pisses other people other off. People. Other it's a, it's a troll off, thing, dude. Which so is just mind-blowing uh-huh. because what you are is a sociopath with no empathy at exactly. that point. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And why would you hold to that opinion if if you are if you are like just doing that to get a rise out of watching somebody else's misery? Fuck you. Yeah. yeah. Ugh. Hasn't that always <laughs> been kind of the problem, though? I mean, that's not... I don't feel like that's something that's new. Especially with... I don't know. Like, whenever revolutions do happen, people who are against the revolution like seeing people who are with the revolution get pissed off. You know what I mean? I, 
I think that's happened throughout United States history. Yeah, it depends on where you're standing from, and if you're standing from an elevated position, you're enjoying this shit show. Yeah, exactly. watching Watching... As you're making uh, more money. Yeah. yeah as they're going on. Watching us destroy each uh-huh. other. You're enjoying it. So from a position of status, it really, you know... It doesn't affect you because mm-hmm. it doesn't affect your bottom line, and you know they're they're able to self isolate. You know, it's really kind of uh, it's kind of crazy. The pur it, it feels purge esque at mm-hmm. times. Yeah, you know, with that kind of mentality too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, real quick before we get super uh, deep into national politics. Hell uh, yeah! What uh, I'm big guy on um, being close to your community, and I always see uh, oh USD or you yeah USD WSD. Um, teacher approved. Who you vote for for school board? Um, so WUSD has approved two candidates. There's two open seats. Um, the uh, the district two is in the north uh, section of town, up around Sacramento Avenue, and um, by the bridge, mm-hmm. by the bridge area. Um, and that's Danny Theoretical. Okay. Who is actually a River City alumni too? Oh, that's awesome. Okay. Yeah, he. Uh, he has been endorsed by WUSD, and then in District Three, which is across the street for us, so we're on on Jefferson, so oh. over on the Bridgeway Island, okay. mm-hmm. up towards um, Westmore and towards uh, the old high school. That area is District Three, and that's mm-hmm. Kobe Pizzotti has been cool. endorsed by by teachers. Cool. Yeah. I don't know who I'm voting for yet. <laughs> I know I'll vote for Danny. I will put that out there. Um, I'll, I'm pretty sure I'll vote for Kobe, but always I'm I'm watching with great interest and in, in, uh, intent and listening to what they say and talking to them and trying to figure it out. Um, Kobe has been on the school board for several years now and is a solid union thug and reliable um, companion and uh, brother in arms, if you will, because he, he is a big supporter of unions. And that's always something that's always at my forefront of my mind. And Danny is um, a great representation of this community and its youth and its vigor and its enthusiasm. And um, he, he, he's going to learn a lot. He's going to learn a lot. He's very young, but um, he has the passion and drive that um, is going to be necessary. And having some fresh blood is good. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's not a bad thing. At well, all. Absolutely. Especially, I feel like mm-hmm. in a time like this, too. I mean, it's going to be crazy. Uh, He's really student-focused, too, so that was his kind of big push. Um, He he really wants to look for those minority um, people of color, foster youth, homeless youth, those those disenfranchised groups that Mm. really need services and need um, to be spoken. Forgetting about a lot. Yeah, they get mm-hmm. they can be forgotten sometimes in certain districts. That was his big focus, and I know that's where his heart lays, and and that's how he'll be spending his time, hopefully. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Um, one thing me and Pierre really wanted to get into was uh, history censorship, um, especially in public schools, um, because when you go to college, you well, when I went to college, I realized that history isn't always told the way it should be, and we both agreed that. We thought you did the best out of telling both sides of the story. Uh, one of the biggest examples I can think of is you idolizing Malcolm X as a civil rights leader. Not a lot of people do that. When we talk about mm-hmm. civil rights and history, Malcolm X has a little tiny portion, but MLK has this you know, three-page-long summary about his life and how great he was. Um, but how do you feel as a teacher having to teach to a certain standard and not being able to teach what you want to teach? Well... 
I think I do teach what I want to teach. Um, the, the state of California has their standards and guidelines, and I think I hit those um, with fair regularity. Um, yeah, the interesting thing that Dr. King gets idolized a lot, and I look up to him as a civil rights leader, but he wasn't necessarily one of the hardest civil rights leaders at times. And, and he even got a lot of blowback from his own fellow um, leadership, too, and how he was addressing things. Um, and how he was going about things. Um, and, and I think M Malcolm had a, um, a, strong, a strong vision for really pointing and speaking the truth to power and the action that would be necessary and the, and the direct action that would be required. Uh, after the Black Panthers, you know, uh, were literally flipping California on its head mm -hmm. by yeah. offering free meals, free housing, uh, food services to children, uh, promoting safe neighborhoods in Oakland, um, and being militant in their thinking and, and doing regimented rifle movements with unarmed weapons, which was in the state of California mm -hmm. at the time, uh -huh. totally fucking legal. Uh -huh. Fuck, state of California got really freaked out by black men with weapons that Ronald were following Reagan. the law. And they changed the fucking law. Yeah, Ronald Reagan NRA. God first dang. Bill, the first bill they passed. So, like, that sort of thing, you can graft that sort of thing onto a world history, you know, standard mm -hmm. very easily if you're good at what you do and if you know what you're doing, you know. And that's what I always tried to do um, because it's – I'm Irish and Polish, so there's a lot of history there with um, subjugation and persecution, mostly from other white people, you know. Um, the English were horrific to the, the Irish, Irish for yeah. over 800-plus years. Mm -hmm. It's well-documented, right? Um, but in our community in West Sacramento, it's very diverse. And so me being a token white guy up there on the stage trying to teach history, I have to meet students on their terms and their realities, and one of the first things I got away from when I was um, a new teacher was wearing a suit and tie because I would wear khakis and a, and a dress jacket, like a blazer, you know, a dinner sport coat, sport coat, tie. And, and Fogel told me, he goes, how come the suit? I go, well, I want to be professional. I want to look like an – I want to be an academic, you know, professional in this sense. He goes, what about kids who um, – only experience with a suit and a tie has been a cop coming to their door. I said, shit. Yeah. What about the kid whose only experience was when his uh, brother got taken away from a police officer in a suit or, or that? I said, well, okay, well, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, it changed my perspective. You can't be ignorant of your audience mm -hmm. in that sense, and you can't be um, flippant about it. So, you know, I, got, I ditched that. I still wore the shoes and the, the nice pants, but I just threw a collared shirt on and, and tried that approach. And yeah. it, it was it was much better. Um, and the censorship in the original kind of prompt there, people don't want to have these discussions at times. And mm -hmm. people, people, students have said, and other, you know, adults and parents have emailed me, I, you, you know, too liberal or you're too you know are you you're i've had another fellow professional i wouldn't call him professional completely unprofessional say that i'm indoctrinating children into communism and socialism and a whole bunch of other mess 
And I just have to write that person off because that's not what I'm doing here. Yeah, yeah. just tell them the truth. Speaking truth to power, as Michel Foucault often says, you know, power doesn't acquiesce itself. Power is t- uh, taken back. And the, 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 the people with power do not relinquish that as, or want to give it up. Yeah. And when we're talking about education... The education system and the textbooks in this country, the, the, the media that is used, oftentimes is a very one-sided or myopic or uh, Eurocentric narrative. Mm-hmm. And that's not the narrative. The, the book I use, it's a good book, but like, how do you downplay the Atlantic slave trade like with some infographics and talk about how horrible it is, but then like just... That's like less than two pages. Yeah. yeah. You know? I, I skimmed through specifically the coup in Iran with the new textbook that we got. nineteen Early 1950s with Mohammad Mazadeh getting overthrown by the CIA um, and the Doles brothers, John Foster Doles and Alan Doles, put that whole fucking mess together. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I skimmed through the section in Radical Revolution uh, in the Iran chapter, and it wasn't there. And no mention of it. The United States had aided and helped out with the regime change when uh, the the, um, the Sheikh Pahlavi came mm-hmm. in. I'm like, motherfucker, that ain't the story. That is not how that happened, please. Please do not tell that lie. You know, and try to find Chile 1973 with Allende. You won't find it. And so, why the denial? Why the, um, why be afraid? It, it, it does nothing but worsen the narrative, worsen the conversation. Education is the first way to, like we said, first way to start making these discussions. When we were at, uh, sitting back, I mean, not standing back, taking a stand back from the protest as I was there, and my uh, homie asked me, he was like, what do you think would be the answer to all of this? And it's like, starting off with education. You educate people what's really going on from the beginning and teaching them who the people that's around. Because we're – America's the most diverse place that I know of. So you, you educate them about the people who are around them and you don't – you cut the bullshit. Then people start having a little bit more empathy for the yeah. people who are around them. And you get a better understanding for who is your neighbor. You start to understand that, that empathy is what we are lacking. So then you could see like that black kid – who dresses like that isn't a thug he just might not have those resources he can't afford clothes exactly yeah. you know like it's just things like that and not every not everyone's on the same standard as everyone else i loved going through history class sitting there in the back and you know in the back of the class and thinking to myself man oh man i had a growing up black especially in west sacramento i got to already have a big dosage from my parents and my cousins and everyone else of what American history was. Uh, I wasn't uh, censored as a kid. I got to watch American History X really early. I got to watch, you know, uh, Do the Right Thing really early. Like, just movies that would kind of be, like, thought-provoking as you were younger. And then they would be like, nah, open this up. And then we got to learn about Moors, you know, and things like that. And then going to history class, I'd be like, damn, this is funny. Like, this is not mentioned in the history. And then me being curious as a kid going back and like opening up the history book but then now I'm going to go online and also see what some some other like artifacts to say and then go mm, I can see how patriotic this book is 
and I know that it has to serve a purpose in some sort of way, but I know that this is just feeding the kids exactly what they want them to, you know, to know. I saw a great, um, I'm going to, it was like a repost or a retweet, but it was so succinct. It was, um, a statement that this woman had made. She said that history, uh, education does radicalize you. If you really think about it, if you walk it out, if you are properly educated, you become radical Mm -hmm. and not in a bad way. Everybody, that's such a misnomer. But it, it makes you take stand and stand yeah. up. And her big crux was education does radicalize you when you were properly educated. It's why history books are so whitewashed. It's because they don't want you to know that. They don't want you to recognize that there's more there's more similarity than there is difference. They don't want you to recognize that if we stopped fighting each other and really unfuck the system and the, and the measures that it holds on power, that we could build what we wanted Mm -hmm. we could build it how we wanted um and that scares the people who hold the hold the strings really and so you know like education is where it's all starting yeah foundationally and that's why history when when we're talking about censored history look at the national leadership less than a week ago donald trump sat there and said one of the most renowned and respected historians this country has ever produced howard's in is possibly, you know, a traitorous, treasonous, um, political propaganda spewing muckety muck. Fuck that. He just tells it how it is. That man told it how it is. Exactly. The book sits in my classroom, and it's uh, it's akin to a reference source when I need to, you know, go back and check and add something to my standards. Mm-hmm. And I utilize that, you know. You're talking about a people's history. Yeah, people's history. And then a young people's history is a really good primer for our audience or people that maybe have somebody who's not as old and maybe just needs the the youth version is good, too. And and it's like, wow, we we really are scared of education here. Because, you know, he's always said it. He loves a stupid population. He loves stupid people. He said it. Example of this. uh, sometimes I have the time to get in political discussions on Facebook, and I'll sit aside and I'll start debating. Um, well, I got pretty Man, I deep. I had to stop warring. <laughs> no, I know. I took I it off to, my I phone. I just get pissed. I start, my hands get sweaty. I'm like, all right, I need to chill. Um, but I ended up getting in a debate with a cop, um, and he was trying to compare indentured servitude to slavery. And I was like, you just don't get it. Like, you, those aren't comparable things. You could be free as an indentured servant sooner or later. You have to work your ass off for it. Don't get me wrong. They definitely went through their fair share of things. But slavery was, you were a dog. You were nothing You were subhuman. The indentured were, servants exactly. weren't you were subhuman. Nothing. Not, even, yeah. not even subhuman. You can't even say subhuman. You were dirt. Yeah. You were interchangeable. You were and then even and this, it, this man was a cop. Even after that, you were a third of a human. Yeah, in the Constitution, yeah. you were a third of a human exactly. right after. So that's how you know. He's like, mm, we still can't give you fully what we want to give or what you deserve. You get just a sliver of it. And well, and my whole thing was, you're the representation of the anti-Black Lives Matter movement. This is what you're thinking. I mean, this is. Do you tell this to your friends at work? This is what you guys believe in. And it goes with that. People are scared of education, knowing that white people don't have it as bad as black people. They never have had it bad as black people. Jane Elliott, who's um, a foundational educator 
um, in the discussions and discourse on race and race relationships. Is she the older? Is she the older white lady? She's yeah, the she old does white like lady. the big seminars, right? Yeah, she yeah. does the big seminars. Um, and she was she did a big thing on Oprah with uh, anti-Semitism, you know, and whatnot, with like blue eyes versus brown eyes and how people were treated. She, Jane Elliott, one thing she said that stuck with me was that uh, she had a room of white people. And, or she just had a room of people. I, I don't know if it was just white. She had a room of people, and she said, stand up right now if stand up right now if you would be willing to switch places with an African-American male or female in this country um, for what they are given and how they are treated in this country. Obviously, nobody stood up. Mm-hmm. She goes, no, 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 you're not hearing me. Stand up if you think that you would like to be treated just as African-Americans... Uh, men and women in this country are treated. And again, people are like starting to put their heads down and not standing up. She goes, what this tells me is that you're recognizing the injustice and the inequality, but yet you aren't willing to tackle it or you aren't willing to ever trade places with that, which makes it almost worse because now you know and you're seeing it and you aren't doing anything about it. You're a part of of the problem. problem. Yeah. You are a part of it. And that's why I can't stand when I had a kid the other day I, I don't think I'm going to vote. I said, well, ah. even, if you, even if you, you know, go down the deepest conspiracy rabbit hole, um, you can't ever fully complain if you didn't ever pull the ballot, um, whether, whether we get into that rabbit hole. But the thing is, is that by, by not voting or by not even expressing where you stand on something, you empower the already powerful. You empower the system and you empower, you empower the majority by never speaking back truth to power. So when people say, I don't, I don't like to get political, by not choosing to ever have any stance on anything, you just have become political. Yeah. And you are now a tool and effective for them. Mm-hmm. And they can count on that. Yeah, if you're sitting there watching it happen, I mean, that, they got you where they want you. Yeah, I, I tried to beef with somebody over the indentured servitude, and they're, they're like, well, no, it was pretty bad. I'm like, shut the fuck up. It man. was bad, but it, it wasn't nobody's even Nobody's saying close. it's not bad. Yeah, exactly. It just wasn't <laughs> even as close. You can't compare them. They're incomparable. Yeah. I just, uh, uh, my cinema class in, for school, we were talking about the black representation. And I just realized how even cinema made you think about um, slaves and, like, the the mammy thing. Like, you know, like. The, so are you reading Tom's, Coons, Mulattoes, and Mammies and Bucks? No. The history it's, of black. Uh, it's black on that. It's on that. I, so. I'm not gonna front. The teacher does give you a list of stuff to read, and okay. I just take the quiz. I just take. <laughs> I just go straight to the quiz. Um, but it's how the lie of the mammy being the dark-skinned, bigger woman, which would never be the case because uh, the people. It's hard for me not to say it in the way that I only know it. Like, but the house uh, slaves were um, light-skinned, and also to make some to make people believe that the mammies would also be bigger women was never the case because they were malnourished. No slave were over, that over like the obesity, obesity was not exactly. A no, no, not at all. Like you were lucky to have a healthy weight as a slave. And just saying that like, uh, in cinema that that's a big part to play too. Like <clears throat> now everyone else, I mean, it, once that movie gets released, people don't understand the trickle-down effect of just even, like, cinema. This is off on a tangent. But it gets released here. And also gets showed in China 
and you know Saudi Arabia and other places. Well, maybe not Saudi Arabia, but other places that film is allowed. London, blah blah blah. And those people start to believe those things that were placed in that movie because sometimes stereotypes, sadly enough, are you know are believed. And I was like, holy shit! I didn't realize that there's no way that she would have been in that house, and there's no way that she would be overweight because there's that's just not the that's not the were truth. Were you talking Gone with the Wind? Uh, what uh, what film? Were the you? Help. Uh, just any of those. Okay. Like the help was one of the main ones on the quiz, and I was like, "Wait a second, that's right." <laughs> they had a, an actress. I mean, she did a great job, but she portrayed as a bigger lady that was the mammy. It's no possible way. What's the other? Going to the wind is the older one, right? With with what's the main actor? With what one? Going to the wind. Yeah. What's the main actor? Oh, geez. Um, why am I having a brain? Uh, it was. I, I can't they both win like. Older, like, Oscars, if I'm not mistaken, back then when that was allowed. And let's see, 19, what was 1961 or 62, I think, for Gone with the Wind? It might have been earlier. Yeah, handsome black dude, dark skinned, and the same thing, like, the mom that played in there. Both of them would not be in that position. That was just a play on false history. And it worked. False narrative. Yeah, exact false narrative. Because even me now, just now, just today, I just realized. There was no way in hell there was a bigger lady in the house that's dark skinned like me, uh, taking care of the children. Just yeah. never it just never was a thing. Yeah, they would probably want somebody that's uh, small, thin. Closer looking to them was the best way to get. Trying to get closer mm-hmm. looking to them. Yeah, absolutely. I always go to UC Davis once a year and my last time there I picked up a bunch because it was really high on the, you know, the the social consciousness mm-hmm. and is kind of like at the forefront of the zeitgeist and the discussion that's been going on. So I'd go over to the African American studies section. I always check through the history section, and I, I picked up that book, which was I'm still kind of playing through it. It's tracing the hil- uh, film history of blacks and African Americans in American culture, and it kind of identified five archetypes mm-hmm. too. I don't know if you've uh, been familiar with those in your film class, but it was interesting how they. Um, they would use bucks, mulattoes, uh, what they call coons, mammies, and then the uh, uppity. Yeah. To to archetype and stereotype African American personas, and one of the first ever African Americans portrayed in film was a guy doing fucking blackface. Yeah. It's like goddamn. Yeah. Uh, Birth of a nation. Yeah. Birth of a nation. It's like these motherfuckers have this shit so backwards and so entrenched that they wouldn't even let a black person play a black person. A black person. <laughs> they used obviously blackface, which mm-hmm. was just a racial epithet that they used. And it's just, yeah. Interesting times. Yeah. That's a good rabbit hole to fall down there. Film and film criticism. And, yeah. Uh, no, I, I that's love... That's my, my secret hobby right there. That's yeah. all him. Yeah, yeah. that's me. I, I write scripts sometimes and stuff like that. I'm oh, yeah? a big, big, big into movies and stuff what like that. What are you working that. on right now? Uh, it's called Popular Loner, and it's based, it's based off of stuff that I went through, but not in... The, it's, it's from stories that I think are funny and great in a movie, but not by me, if that makes sense. It's supposed to... It's stuff that only I experience, but... It's not me. It's it's a fictional character. So I might exaggerate and I might dramatize things, but that's what I like to do. Oh, it's, nice. Yeah. It's it's. I, I I tell people I go to sleep to Dave Chappelle like almost every night. <laughs> so I try to get those jokes off in there and like just really uh, exercise my penmanship. So I might not read a lot, 
and that gives me my chance the magazine and that gives me my chance to at least write and use more vocabulary and like study that so if i need to like uh, learn more about scripts i'll read a script and see uh the first the script i really read was mid 90s by jonah hill Mm -hmm. and i read it it's a good movie but it's a horrible script and i finally got to see that and they were like that's one person and i love jonah hill it's not a knock to him, but it was like, that's a person because he knows people in Hollywood that would correct it for him. So don't follow the same script as him. So I'll go back and I'll pick up different scripts that's kind of fitting in the storyline that I want. Like even hate, Everybody Hates Chris. I would find even like scripts of that where the punchlines come in. And uh, I just I would just work on that here and there. Yeah, underrated show right there. Yeah, everybody really Hates show. Chris. I love that show. That show's hilarious. Yeah. I love that show. <laughs> um, how do you keep teaching touchy subjects um i mean how do you push those buttons because you have to you have to do it in a sense where you can't i wouldn't say like go as ultimate as losing your job but piss off parents um you can't have kids being pissed off i guess like what's your tactic how do you how do you tackle something like that something controversial like donald trump or exactly a a touchy subject like slavery that's Mm -hmm. uh moved its way into the American narrative again? Because I think that's... We kind of were talking about it. One of the biggest problems we have here in America is we don't like to talk. We don't like to talk to conservative people about why they're conservative. We just say, no, you're wrong. But if we understood each other a little bit more, there's a huge gap. And I feel like if we really understood each other a little more, we could come to a consensus. That's what this podcast is basically for. We don't have many people that disagree with a lot of things. We're trying to and branch out. We got slapped in the face with that idea, but... Most of the time, it's it's meant to... Growing up, my whole thing was giving a platform for people to people and kids that's like me to feel better about themselves and, you know, uh, have confidence and live their life happily, but then also to bridge gaps in between people who might not have... It's not meant to... It's, communism is not my answer to everything, and it's not meant for me to have the same ideals that you do, but it's great to have a base... A, the basis to at least know where you're coming exactly from. yeah exactly and uh, have those conversations because uh i mean i don't uh, i think about it just in the group of friends that i had i was one the only black kid and i was able to navigate through high school knowing everyone but my group of friends my core my core friends didn't represent what I looked like or anything like that, but I got to show them kind of what life was like for me. They got to show me what life was for them. And I got to learn so much through that experience. And that's the reason why I never knock on uh, having those touchy conversations. Like over the years, you know, time goes on and we start to have more conversations and like, how are the protests going? And how do you feel about it? And how, because now now we have a better understanding. These are real things that's happening. It's not going to help us to, act like it's you know it's nothing and that's not helping us but yeah that's a good question on asking because like you said the parents be emailing you back yeah i you know i i try to be as professional as possible i don't want to you know i'm not here to offend i'm not here to uh you know purposefully antagonize or interrogate people mm-hmm. uh, my job is to follow california state standards as best as I can. Uh, but my job is also to educate humans. You know, it's funny when people ask you, like, what do you teach? 
I teach humans. <laughs> I teach fucking humans, man. Um, and I think because River City has such a diverse population, you know, and Caucasian or white kids do not hold a monopoly mm-hmm. on that, um, that's a good thing because that gives them a lot more perspective, a lot more understanding. They talk to their friends that are Indian. They talk to their friends that are black. Mm-hmm. They talk to their friends that are Laotian or Thai or Filipino or Mexican. Mm-hmm. Like we have a lot of diversity at our school. And I think it's made for some really great kids and it's made for um, a more tolerant mindset that when they get to me sophomore year and I'm talking about injustice and struggle they can recognize it yeah and they recognize it earlier and so then you know telling and that gives me opportunity to talk about economic freedom mm-hmm. and financial slavery which is 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 the invisible thing that is bigger sometimes than some of these like It'd be great to get over those racial issues. It would be great. I would love that. Let's do it. The the financial hinges and tentacles that are latched onto people, especially in this country, they're unbelievable. Mm-hmm. You could we could spend another five podcasts doing yeah. you know just uh, that. Another uh-huh. another thing people don't remember, or another people think don't uh, don't realize is that white people are racist to other white people, especially if they're broke. Yeah, white people hire like people hire. Uh, Class white people hate poor people, you know, poor white people. And that's something that they will keep pushing down. So it's like, uh, as far as even like racism, I'm talking about systematically, good luck. It, it's, not just, it's not just one race that have these hurdles that we have to get over. And financial freedom is really the answer to a lot of the things that education, financial freedom... Once we start to have that, another thing, another conversation I've been having with a lot of uh, black people is get life insurance. I read one thing that struck my mind so fast was if these cops keep killing us unlawfully and murdering us and we have life insurance, these corporations are going to be behind us a lot more because we have stake in in their interests. Insurance companies whole thing isn't to give you the money out of you know an accident they're meant to cash in on the money that you're giving them every month now they have to keep doing this because these cops keep killing you oh it's gonna be a problem there's gonna be some That's laws yeah, yeah, get exactly real quick uh-huh. real quick exactly. exactly so my goal now is uh as i'm going through insurance things but i'm getting life insurance it's 20 bucks. You're young. You get you, the younger you are, the better rates you get locked in for. And I think 20 bucks for the next 20 years of my life. So God forbids anything happen. But if something does now, you have these corporations to stand behind you, not for the fact of and not knocking Nike or anything like that, not for the fact that most of the athletes that wear Nike are black, but for the dollar signs, because these people really will start to hear you a lot more once money gets involved. They don't want to, and they don't want to think about how much money we spend with them. Black people are the black people are the most consumers out of all races. The money doesn't stay in our community very long, but they don't care and they don't want to recognize that. But as soon as you get corporations behind you, long story short, it makes the argument a little bit more valid, and it has people in power to stand behind you. 
So well, yeah, when you shut off the uh, the valve of the the cash flow, or you you know if you were able to organize African American, Black communities, Hispanic communities together in a way that you know, hey, boycott that shit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Watch how fast you'll get a reaction. Watch how fast CEOs start whistling different tunes. Motherfucking Colin Kaepernick's shirt sold out in like sixteen minutes. Yeah. Crazy. The all, are you talking about the all black jersey? Yeah. yeah. My girlfriend was telling me about that. I'm like, ooh, let me see that. That looks that that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. I like that. I have my own Kaepernick jersey at home and I fucking wear. Not because I'm a Niners fan, but because I support I'm and recognize yeah. I recognize what that discussion has to be. And it comes when when it comes to parents, that shit gets really easy really quick for me. Because and I haven't had one in a few years, knock on wood. Uh, mm-hmm. Because, um, you know, how are you going to tell me, one, how to run my classroom, which is why I love teaching, because of the freedom it gives you. But also, two, how are you going to tell me that I need to tone it back when there's probably two or three kids in my class that that story is relatable to? Yeah. Mm-hmm. How are you going to stop me on that? And you're not. And you're not. Which is, you know, California education and California, as much as people sometimes knock it and us, um, it's one of the last bastions where I have that soapbox of liberty mm-hmm. and discussion and discourse. And am I filling their heads with stuff? I don't know. Maybe. But I'm, certainly not, I'm certainly not filling it with bad things. Yeah. I'm filling it with fact and empathy and um, a reality of this world that the way that we think we see it isn't necessarily what it is, mm-hmm. too. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to go put my tin tinfoil hat on tonight and you know check in on info wars or any bullshit like that but like no there there's power structures and systems in this country that people frankly don't want you to know about Mm -hmm. for that very reason because if you did you'd be rioting tomorrow knowledge is power yeah knowledge is power that's a big 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 thing like we were talking about before just starting off with the education system and having more teachers like you that will stand by teaching kids things that they should know to create that empathy oh man that's that's in the, that's we're going in the right that's going in the right direction that we need to be going into because having the talks now with like my my friends uh, lately it's just been like man life is a little scary looking right now but there is still hope there's still i mean if having the conversation with you and your like you and your grandma is like they're like this generation doesn't take shit anymore but just waiting to see the generation that comes after, after us. Exactly. You know, if this stuff is still going on, hopefully not. But maybe that might really be the last straw. I would hope to live in my life, you know, in my lifeline, my lifetime. I mean, and see the change that needs to be done. Yeah, we, we've raised you with Harry Potter and Hunger Games, yeah. and Avengers, yeah. who have who have. United against a common enemy and fight the man, fuck the man, fight for each other. We've raised you on that mentality and then released you into the wild. And it comes to life. And expect (laughs) you not to be pissed off and expect you not to be in the streets Mm -hmm. and expect you to just sit there and go, well, another black guy got killed. Fuck no, we've raised you to get angry and upset at that sort of thing. We've shown you in film. We've shown you in media Mm -hmm. that you speak up and that the the little guy or the team of little guys can can make a difference. Mm -hmm. What this country expects and, like, 
No, you're not protesting right. Well, I, okay. Oh, I hate that. Fuck out of here. Yeah. Fuck out of here with your bullshit narrative. You can't tell people how to protest. protest. That's the purpose. Mm. Look at these ass. I, I had a I had a Facebook war like you were talking about, you know, with a guy who's like, why are they fucking getting onto the freeway? Motherfucker, because it made your day difficult, didn't yeah. it? Mm-hmm. Why do you think they did it? They're just being assholes and belligerent. Why can't they just peacefully protest? Like, they are. That is peaceful. And now you know what they're upset about. And that's the purpose of getting onto the fucking Raising freeway. Raising awareness. They raised awareness mm-hmm. on your fucking meter. Even if you're too stupid or don't want to hear it right now, that's why you did it. Mm-hmm. That's why they did it. I got anxiety going out to um, the protest to the point where it felt like I had an elephant sitting on my chest and I couldn't go. I was, one, nervous about COVID. Mm-hmm. And for two, I was... Um, I, I, I felt like part of it was my fight and part of it wasn't my fight. And I had to find a way to be supportive mm-hmm. elsewhere. So I started making financial <laughs> support. I, yeah. was, I, was, uh, I, I gave a buddy of mine 200 bucks. I said, you need signs, you need water, use this. Do what you can. B- because it was the anxiety level that I had that I experienced in war. Mm-hmm. And I just couldn't put myself out there. And so for... For young people to go out there and stand in the face of danger and rubber bullets, I have the utmost respect for. And it just, it tears at my heart when I see fucking people who are supposed to be upholding the law, literally inverting all of this narrative of what this country is supposed to be and harming and hurting peaceful protesters. Mm -hmm. It, It fucking just blows my mind. I had that conversation with my parents the other day. I was like, I... There's a huge problem in this country, and it got real personal um, really quick because, I mean, my best friend's black. You know, I grew up with a black best friend, and it's always been a problem, but when it got brought to the forefront like this, that's when it started hurting the most. And when he started explaining his side and we had a podcast, that's when it started hurting me more because I knew my friend was suffering from it. And I said, I think that's, like, the difference between my generation and a generation like my parents is they didn't have a ton of friends that were... You know, they have a lot of Mexican friends, but not black friends. They don't have a group of diverse friends like we've been blessed to have. And, but we feel that empathy. I felt that empathy for the black community when that happened because my best friend's black. It hurts him. I can tell that it hurt him. And I don't know, man. There's got to be change somewhere. But I'm the same way. When, how can you protest in this country? What's the right way to protest? You hold a little sign on the sidewalk and you just... <laughs> People be, are going to get upset polite. by that. Yeah. You know? You know I, I mean, mean, you can't Colin, play it. Colin please Kaepernick, everyone. Who Colin cares? Colin Kaepernick peacefully protested for a year and a half in the NFL. And he got bashed every single game he went on to. Every single game. He took a knee. Didn't say anything. Took a knee. And that was still wrong. But, you know, people start burning down shit. They start getting mad, getting on cars. The argument started with my parents because when the the guy was on top of that police car, uh, I was like, I don't think the police should have sped off, quite honestly. Police has a gun. Or that cop has a gun. He can protect himself. He doesn't have to speed off and hurt someone. You know what I mean? He's trained in situations like that. That protester is not trained in a situation like that. A threat to justice anywhere, or injustice anywhere, is a threat to justice everywhere. And, you know, in a historical sense, it's, it's, we can look at Colin and say he's meaningful. 
and <laughs> it, it's goddamn powerful. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I don't know how much money he's raking in right now, but it's probably more than he was ever getting for throwing a football. football. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm happy for him. Get, mm-hmm. get your money. Um, because the way they treated him for what he did, that is now just like, oh, yeah, if we don't tow this line, we're going to... The NFL is an interesting anomaly because, mm-hmm. like, there's a bunch of racist fucking fucks that want to keep oh, keep politics out of football in my American <laughs> Like, shut up. But basketball, look at how basketball grabbed that shit by the throat and was like, nah, we're not having it, and, and sat out a couple games. Stopped. Put it on the courts. Um, predominantly African-American players in that, in that realm mm-hmm. uh, that felt they needed to speak that truth to power. And, and it's interesting that that Collins' work, I call it work, but because he put in work and, and got fired for his job, um, he, he, he he laid the groundwork for this, and, and he normalized it. And now we look back from a historical perspective, um, and people are like, okay, I get it. I, I, see, I see it now. So his sacrifices is not to be undersold, you know? Like the guy gave up his career for that, but look what look what he's look at the conversations that he's allowing people to see and have now. Because if somebody changes their mind, and go, damn, it all makes sense now why Colin was doing that four years ago when he was trying to tell us, and I see it now. Then I think Colin would be happy to know that 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 conversation transpired. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with that. I, I think with parents, it's a lot easier than, you know, and I try not to be controversial on purpose. And ultimately, you know, I lay it out like it's, a, it's the story of the other. It's from somebody else's perspective. And you can't dismiss that. And you can't wash it off. And you can't tell me that it's not relevant because it's pain. It's human suffering. It's human misery throughout eons. And it has to be explored so that we can move past it. The goal of, of the historian is not to necessarily, you know, know every single thing about the past. The goal is to analyze and find the patterns, find the cycles, mm-hmm. find the meaning in the discourse so that when we're moving forward, we're coming from a place of, of empathy and knowledge and an ability and skill set to make the best decision. Yeah. Parents know history repeats itself. But it's like, oh, let's not talk about the things that's going to happen sooner or later. And historians definitely know history exactly, repeats yeah. itself. And we sit here with our hands tied going, shit, is anybody going to listen to us? Yeah, when is it going to finally? I mean, when are people actually going to start listening? Because <clears throat> you're right. It just repeats itself. It's a constant cycle. How'd that conversation with your parents go? Is it? Uh... No, yeah, it went well. It was just more, more of both of my parents are really with the movement. Um, they think it's kind of starting to lose the original meaning, which I don't really agree with. Um, but they were more so thinking about, I guess, like their safety if there were riots here. And I was like, look, nobody's going to fuck with us. I'll tell you that much. Nobody's, nobody's coming to the fucking no, suburbs to take your place. Exactly. No. Exactly. No, that's what I was explaining to him. That's what I was explaining to him. No, nothing is going to happen here. Um, In June, when they boarded up Target, that was such a knee-jerk, fucking narrow reaction. reaction. Yeah. Like, no one's coming to Target to fucking get some extra diapers. Yeah. Chill. How is the... Pierre, are you active? As far as, like, protesting and stuff? Yeah, are you... So far, no, because, honestly, I figured... uh, Okay, two things. 
when we were out protesting, it really upset me that it became a, a political pa- platform for someone else while we were there. So uh, we were protesting, and this guy was using his platform, his his, st- his stage, because his brother was killed by you know an uh, officer, and to to put himself in a position to be um, I don't know. He was like it was an agenda behind it. And then I, we were uh, we were at the police department, and they were starting to chant uh, Carol Baskin, and I went, yeah, you know what, this is not why I'm here, you know. And someone got told me was like, oh, they're calling the DA Carol Baskin, but I was just like, we could have said something else, you know, because now people are in that crowd. There, there was a black dude right next to me who was like, what the fuck? This is not what we're supposed to be doing. Why are we chanting Carol Baskin? If you didn't know, that's why they were chanting it, because the DA was whatever they Mishandled were. Mishandled yeah, exactly. did something bad yeah. in their eyes. And you would be like, oh, this is, becoming me- this is becoming a meme. And Sacramento, to me, became a meme as I was out there. And I was just looking at it, just like, it's not, it just lost. It's- Sacramento lost its momentum. I know for a fact everywhere else hasn't. And it's fine with me knowing that even in the city that I live in, the best that I can do is have these conversations with the people that are around me. And that will go just as far as, you know, going out there to protest is because of, like I said, education is the only way I really believe that we will get somewhere. Education, I believe rioting, uh, I want to say rioting, protesting uh, will still get us places, setting up um, great foundations for each other, such as like the Know Your Rides camp. And stuff like that, which I will actively donate and study on. But as far as protesting here in the city that we live in, uh, not happening anytime soon. After the first, the first, the first time they chanted it, I was like, what the hell? And I walked with them for a little bit longer. And they chanted it again. And I was like, no, I'm not crazy. There's just something not right about this. And then I'm watching the guy who was supposed to be leading the group of us. They were fighting because they wanted more people to follow them down the line. But it's like, what? This is not what's supposed to be happening. Uh, there's a common you know, goal here. You guys are worried about this person having this many more groups of people behind him. What the hell? We're, we're on the wrong page right here. Right. And I realized it's just not the place to be. There's other ways that you can fight against this uh, this uh, social uh, injustice. Even in your house, like I said, having the conversations, you can uh, donate, you can educate yourself, um, you can vote, which is a big thing. Vote for the like, if people. If there's one thing that you can vote for, that you will see impact is your local laws and your people you put in possession put in power a position of power locally Mm -hmm. and once i started realizing that i was like it's cool that i might not be out protesting for sacramento i'm praying for everyone every night if they're out there which we don't have any protests happening anymore like i said we lost that momentum but no i'm not and i i am i will loudly speak on why i'm not and why i would not go back out there in sacramento but also during the pandemic i'm not going to travel to san francisco or la for a protest supposed to you know stay home and that's exactly what i'm doing but sacramento no it was upsetting to as a black male to see that that's what we're doing in the city that i grew up in and it was just like shit yep not dealing with this i don't want to be a part of this carol baskin chanting group 
for whatever reason. Like, that's no, so it's stupid. Off, yeah, that's it's so it was, off yeah, topic, right? Yeah, there. I was just like, what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't even. Yeah, that doesn't register. Mm-mm. That's an interesting point you bring up. The um, the voting is that sometimes kids or people, other adults, oh, it's doesn't matter. It's a two party system. It's already rigged. But they forget that local impact. Oh, and man. I think you're seeing. I think you're seeing a lot of people return to local activism on a local level because it's the one place, like you said, that you can really affect real change. Mm-hmm. Speak out at a mm-hmm. speak out at a city council meeting. Speak directly to a mayor. Uh, raise those voices in those local areas. Refuse to support a ballot that is unjust. Mm-hmm. You know. Read the propositions that are coming down because there's like a shit ton of yeah. them, right? Especially I have, on this ballot. Yeah. I'm reading a. I got that book on my kitchen table, you know, and and think locally. You, you know, everybody always wants to try to focus on the globe. Yeah, but it starts in your own backyard yep. too. Think globally, act locally mm-hmm. was the old slogan, and mm-hmm. it's like it's still true to this day. It still is. It's still super true, and it's still super relevant because all these protests that. All these protests happened in our communities. Look how far it went. If you want to um, shed light to something, this is like the longest protest there's ever been in history. It went all the way to Spain, Germany, England, everywhere else. Because like people got to see, like, holy shit, there is a lot of stuff going on, and they got to see it even within their own communities. There's more and more people now speaking out in um, London saying, like, no, we still experience racism just like, you know, America. And would they have been doing it the same route, the same way, if it wasn't for what's happening in America? I don't know. But now us having what's going on here in our homeland, it's breaking the barriers over there for them as well. And that's a good thing. The least and the, the less and less more we have racism is the better. And I don't get why people don't understand that, but it's I. I was reading a little Carl Sagan, and I was uh, my new Nat Geo came, and they were talking about um, which one? The new one, the the brand new issue where they were talking about the. Um, it's got the dinosaurs on the front. Oh, I haven't gotten it yet. Okay, <laughs> but they were talking about Voyager ten and eleven, mm-hmm. and uh, the map that they sent out to. Um, so they put this gold disc on yeah, the side yeah, of yeah. it. Okay, mm-hmm. you, you know that. And it's the coordinates to how to get to home, basically. Yeah, they have languages on it. It's like a record, right? Well, yeah, and they also use hydrogen as the the standard symbol in math and me- measurements. But they basically uh-huh. took like fourteen quasars um, and, and uh, tri- used trajectories and things like that. I'm not a scientist, so I don't know if I'm using the right word. Uh, triangulated it using fourteen different um, quasars to show where we are in the galactic arm. But they had this really cool foldout. Of where the satellites were, and they're not very far away, like, in spatial relationship. But it made me zoom out, like, you know, 30,000 miles and look at the Earth from far away. It's like, god damn, there's so much human consciousness about injustice and trying to fix things right now. And here we are just fucking this tiny little rock out in the middle of the fucking back-ass arm of the Milky Way galaxy. And we're fucking, and I started looking at the map. I was like... Fucking wonder what's over there. Wonder what's over there. Wonder what's fucking over there. What's going yeah. on over there? And here we are, like splitting hairs over color of people's skins on this planet. We can't figure this shit out. It's like, man, maybe we don't deserve some of this shit. Sometimes, no, yeah. so, sometimes, so stupid. Even, yeah, I go. We don't. We don't. 
and, and, uh, and I remember having the conversation with people like, man, we don't even realize the earth is dying. And that's yeah. the one common thing we have with each other, that we live on the same planet. And if this thing fucks and up, don't even yeah, exactly. That. There's and people if, that if, are against that. If there's, if this is dying while we're fighting for what we're, we're fighting for right now, we won't be fighting much longer. <laughs> we'll be exactly. And then also, I mean, one of my favorite movies is Mad Max. Imagine fighting for the necessities. You're not going to be worried about who the hell looks like you. You're going to be worried about making sure you and your family eats. Yep. That's going to be a scary sight at that point. And right now, as far as how this uh, social injustice is going, people are ready to fight like there's not necessities because of how long this has been going on. And I don't think people get that. Um, I always hated the, uh, the, the I always hated someone saying go back to your home your home country. It's been so many years I don't have any recollection of where I come from, and to say go back home, shit. I wish if I knew where that was, I would love to know. But this is home. This is the only thing we have. So as an African American, and some people might not they like they like they like to drop the American part. Uh, Dude, it's just we're in the same boat. No pun intended, but we're in the same boat as far as the shit that's going on. And we, like you said, we're splitting hairs over this people's skin color. Another thing we learned in like uh, I think it was in it's in my political science class is just race became more of a thing in America than it was anywhere else. It was first to make sure the hierarchy stayed together. And then after a while it became to identify slaves. And then after that, it became to really identify a slave and keep them in place. Mm -hmm. Because if you keep them in place, you have the power over them to keep them as your slave. And people don't think those things, they think they vanish after it's gone. That's not the case. And I mean, I don't want to make a whole podcast about race and just injustices, but Holy shit, dude! There's this so there's this there's answers to this shit that people don't understand that can be done. It's not that hard, but it's gonna take some time, and it's gonna it's gonna be a while before I think so we get to those to those places. But back to your answer, hell no, I'm not protesting in Sacramento. <laughs> After that, I was pissed. I was so pissed, and I was just like, look. Like it just didn't make any sense for us to be doing that at the at the police office, man. I was really pissed to see that. It really, it really, knowing that people that look like me are dying, even in my room. This is to me that my room. I always say this: this is my like, this is my world. I got posters on my wall that really embrace. They really are traits of who I am. And then I go out into the real world, and I remember people are getting killed that look like me just because they look like me. And then it's no, nothing more than just that. They see, are still seen as subhuman and people who, you know, we just don't matter. It's depressing to know that I can get pulled over and my life could be over. It's, it's really, it's, that's what suppression is, to keep you in place. And it's depressing to know that's what the rule is and that's what's going on. Because shit, dude, as, as a 20-year-old, knowing that, having a little brother, and now my dad has twins who are just turned one. They're going to have to go through that cycle all over again. And to be out there protesting, and it just didn't feel like it was being taken serious of the matter that's going on. So, like I said, hell no, not going back out there. It just wasn't, it wasn't making any sense. 
it, yeah, I mean, when Nick approached me and then he told me who he was doing it with, I was glad to hear that you're you're doing something and safe because I still think about all every time I see uh, Isaiah Flag, he'll be out there like maybe working on the football field, I'll go out there and give him a big old hug because I I have no idea what it's like to be black in America. Uh, but I, I'm sick and tired of seeing the, 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 the hate, the animosity, and the clear, clear injustice mm-hmm. every single day. And I don't need to be black to know that that's fucking not Going right. Yeah. yeah. And I would, you know, it breaks my heart. And, and I think about that. And that brought up that damn Nat Geo. We got to go back to Nat Geo because the next thing after the uh, Voyager thing was this photo biopic. This mother had done, uh, she started this campaign of young black men being held by their mothers um, as oh, if they had been yeah, shot. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And it was, it made me cry in my kitchen. I'm like, how, how is the mindset and the mentality of the mothers in this country? How is that happening? What's, what's going on there? And that's Malcolm X said it perfectly, uh, the most disrespected human on this earth is a black woman and uh, it's so it, it doesn't even grasp my it, it's such a it's not even hard thing to understand it's just more or less how drastic it actually is to know how shit how much shit my sisters and my mother get because of that they're a woman and because the color of their skin and that's a whole other topic, but yeah, it's it's a really just yeah the moms that have to go through it that bury their kids. I my mom imagine. all the time. My mom's a pastor, so she's always praying for us and stuff like that. I'm not so much religious, and I always say this, but just she'll just call us sometimes, and sometimes she'd be on the verge of tears, just thinking like shit. Like I don't want to have to be to bury my kids, and to the moms that had to, I couldn't imagine. I couldn't even. Yeah, people are getting on Brianna Taylor's mom for uh, using the money. In a way that she did, she I guess uh, they said that. Well, I guess the news is that she bought a house in a Bentley. Look, if my child has died, I am going to do the best that I can to suppress my sadness. And if that's me buying material things, but you know, my daughter just died. I don't know what else. To, like, yeah, I don't think anybody's yeah, you, in a position to tell somebody how they should cope. No, with the yeah. loss of their child uh, who was murdered. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, I don't think, I don't know why people are trying to have an argument about that. That's, you're crazy. Yeah. And uh, that, I remember, I, I know exactly what photo shoot you were talking about. And that was a deep one. And uh, just a nasty feeling. Like, but it, it, some days I have hope for it. And then some days I'm like, shit, dude, where are we going to go? You know? It's interesting the uh, climate change discussion got uh, pushed off the, the topic and mm-hmm. the table pretty much by COVID. Yeah. And um, it's been at the forefront of my brain. It's like, hey, uh, climate change didn't go away, anybody. No. And, uh, do, do we still want to talk about this? Do we want to <laughs> make sure that we don't kill ourselves on this planet and overheat it? And Yeah, it's pretty bad. Because yeah, are- that's kind of something we're not even focused on in our election. You no. notice that? Now it's COVID and Black Lives Matter. Yeah. I mean, there's a, a glacier fucking the size of half of England ready to calve off of Antarctica. It's like, dude, <laughs> dude, stop. There's yeah. hope, though. Yeah, but let's uh, uh, deregulate all the environmental protections and and, and the, uh, uh, fuck. <laughs> check, please. 
<laughs> Pretty much, in it. Um, just talking to um, some friends, and they're talking about how Wall Street put that seven-year, you know, time. Uh, what would you call it? A countdown oh, clock that countdown on there. Clock. I saw that, and yeah. then Gavin Newsman was like, "Hey, by 2035, you guys can't sell any more gas-powered cars in California." And I started doing the math. It was like 2035, 2020, <laughs> seven years from now would be 2027. Um, yeah, that's not fast enough, sir. <laughs> and I'm not saying that that's not a great step, but I'm, all, I'm just saying like, and that clock isn't saying that we can continue doing the shit that we're doing now in seven years. It's finally going to go bad. No, we're doing the shit that we're doing now. It's going bad. and It's only getting worse. That clock isn't, it isn't, uh, time People don't understand time isn't a, a real thing. It's a social construct. And the way that we are already doing damage to Earth, it's kind of hard to already re- reverse it. So it's like we can make all the things that we go right now, but we have to make some really drastic changes. But the people in power, it's going to take some, you know, I think to me, it's going to either take some bloodshed or it's going to actually take some time for them to really realize, like, hey, they're leaving their even their own grandchildren and kids to this fucked up world that they, you know. I don't even know if it's nihilism or if it's just fatalism. But, like, I'm like, hey, you're going to have fucking grandkids? And, mm-hmm. like, you, the Mitch McConnells and the fucking CEOs of the world, it's like, you guys are going to have kids and they're going to be on this fucking planet still. And they have to deal with it, yeah. I guess that they think that their money saves them. I always, one thing about doomsday preppers and people who buy bonks, I always go, yep. Because that's going to save you through the whole thing. You know, like, yeah, I guess a bunch, like, 12 inches of reinforced steel will stop a lot of things. But I don't know if it's going to stop everything that this world's going to have. Once it really happens, I don't know if it's going to really stop everything that this world has to offer. We are just seeing little bits of it. There's wildfires. That's you know that's a little taste. That's a little sample that you know Mother Nature's giving us. Like, hey, I can do worse, but I don't think people are grasping. It's one of those uh, not cognitive dissonance, but it's definitely a disconnect because it's so far out. And also, um, they they did a study out of not Davis but a UC where they had um, kind of alluded to because it's so overwhelming and catastrophic and uh, threatening all of humanity. That, like, human beings ha- just want to disconnect that. Yeah. And they want to not be- not believe it is that severe as it is when it is. Yeah. It's like, because, because it makes something in the human brain literally go, shit, we're in jeopardy. We're in life-threatening peril here. You're going to want to numb Do yourself. Do something. Mm-hmm. And it, it's such a huge issue with so many, you know, angles that you have to address that it, it's overwhelming. And people check out on it. And it's the last thing, it's the last thing on our fucking brains that we should be checking out of. Right yeah. yeah, yeah, totally it's the truth agree. of the matter. Yeah. And here I am as a historian watching it all happen, going, "Fuck, <laughs> do something!" <laughs> <laughs> Didn't you guys ever do the DBQ on industrialization? <laughs> fucking coal, Manchester. See, this is why you study in my goddamn class. <laughs> they don't understand. They don't want to hear that, they though. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear it. They don't. Well, Anything else? Nah. I'm solid. Anything else you would like to add or say? Man, I'm so proud of you. Hey, we're doing it. <laughs> I'm so living, proud of you doing your thing out here. 
I'm proud of you for staying alive. I'm proud of yeah. you for fucking being here. Thank you. For being the artist that you you are. Um, for being amazing and setting this up. For, for Nick still reaching out to me. Um, and he's like, no, I, dude, I see Malik. And I go... How the hell do you see this guy? I don't. I don't ever see. I don't ever see. Malik. <laughs> and he goes, "Yeah, I just watched you saw Malik just before this, and uh, we're gonna, you know, he's gonna come over." So I'm just like, what the hell? I don't ever see him. <laughs> you know, still with Facebook, and you know, yeah. um, you'd mentioned that like you know you don't ever see those kids after high school. In West Sac, you do. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's why I, why I like the city still. I still like that. Mm-hmm. I like that aspect. You know, I see kids. I see Quincy over at the grocery store. I yeah, see exactly, students. Uh-huh. That have been there, you know, and get to watch you guys grow up a little bit. Um, and that's that's good. And it's not going to be everyone, but it's the ones that, you know, I cared about, you know, that took the time to make a relationship or put me into their <laughs> graduation freaking speech without my knowledge and then make me cry in the audience. <laughs> that kind of, uh, that stick with it and... Um, you're glad to see them thriving and doing 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 the right work and doing the right thing. You know, I talked to Nick a bunch when he tried to talk with you about, you know, how's Michigan State and we'd connect and I think mm-hmm. you came back to the classroom once or twice. Mm-hmm. And you know those relationships are powerful, you know, because the, obviously it meant something mm-hmm. and it was worth it. And you know that kind of brings us back to teaching and that that makes it worth it for me. Yeah. To know to know amazing young people like you and you, you're okay. <laughs> Been hanging out there like the, the the loafer on the couch this whole time, just just enjoying the show. No, but, uh, uh, to have yeah. three of my former students all doing really cool stuff and um, investing in their lives and and doing big things is is reassuring that the youth isn't that off, that the youth isn't disconnected, and that the youth is you know gonna lead the change i hope please please that's we're you have, trying you, you have know? my that's consent what this podcast is for like <laughs> yeah. you said that's you have my consent trying. to go fuck up the system <laughs> trying one one bit by a time and it's it's just like i said it, educating yourself and making sure if we do at least fuck it up can we get it right so we don't have to worry about refucking it up later on mm-hmm. you know yeah. and putting these kids my whole thing is putting younger people after us into the same fuck-ups that we made because a hard head makes for a soft ass. At least I can be hard headed and make my and pay for my own mistakes. But to make other people, you know, pay for it, it's a it's a little it's a little saddening, you know. At least for me, because I have some sort of empathy. But yeah, cashing checks for our grandchildren, you know, that they're gonna have to pay up on is is horrible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, I'm, I, that's why I don't have kids. Yeah, <laughs> not I understand not because I couldn't find anybody, but not just because like. I don't know. It just never came to... I don't know. There's enough human beings on this and earth. And you know what? And the funny thing is, as you got, as I got older, I understood that a lot more, why people don't have kids. For, no, you know, knowing those things, it's a really weird time to be like, yeah, I'm going to, you know, have a kid and, you know, throw them in this fire. But it's like, is that kind of a selfish feeling and stuff like that? But yeah. that's, and once again, it's another tangent. <laughs> it's, another tangent. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a huge investment. It's a huge responsibility. And and in the and I, I stare at Wonder and Target, and I'm looking at people pushing their stroller. I'm like, you fucking had a baby in this world right now? Like, crazy. It's crazy. Like, I don't know. Part of human nature. Yeah. Replicate. <laughs> it's that gene code telling you. 
Nikki. Yeah, it's that gene code telling you. Yeah, but we <laughs> we, we kind of got to buck. We got to buck our genetics and buck our. Um, we got to buck that. We got to make some serious gravitational altering changes, or it won't matter. Yeah. Yeah. We'll just keep digging ourselves deeper and deeper and deeper. As much as I want kids someday, but nah, another topic. Yeah, that's yeah. another podcast right yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, some books I want to shout out, though, is uh, Howard Zinn. Oh, uh, man. I want to shout out Zinn's people. I want to shout out um, Lies My Teacher Told Me, um, which is a great primer for that. Uh, Stephen Kinzer's book, Overthrow, was monumental for me. Um, Civil Rights in the Early 1900s is a, a good book as well. And then... What else? Anything by Michael Connolly, so you guys can have some fun. He's a cop, okay? Mm-hmm. It's a police detective story out of L.A., though. Mm-hmm. But um, he's just tenacious in trying to bring criminals to justice. And my, my one simple guilty pleasure. <laughs> it's a little bit of fiction in, in this LAPD detective. Plus, LA, anything writing about L.A. is always kind amazing. of fun. Yeah. That's an amazing city. Yeah. So, as much as I hate on the Dodgers, and you're an A's fan, and I know we both... Both uh, have disdain for the Dodgers. Dodgers, yeah. Uh, the city is still beautiful and amazing and got so much personality, and I, I love le- reading literature around that, too. Oh, there's a good – what was it? Um, you guys should definitely – if you haven't checked out Parasite, watch Parasite. Oh, Parasite's, Parasite's awesome. great, yeah. <laughs> Parasite's, Parasite's great. amazing. <laughs> yeah. Especially, I mean, in this context, it's pretty cool. Right. The context. Yeah, the, the wealth inequality. Now. Yeah. And I was just watching um, my one YouTube shout out would be Movies with Mikey. Um, check him out. Film Joy. Okay. And he was talking about Knives Out as a critique on uh, social and financial inequity. So if you haven't seen that one yet, check Absolutely. it out. Some of my recommendations. Oh, and the new Deftones album just dropped, too. <laughs> and check out Manson, too. We Are Chaos album is pretty fucking sick. Well, Malik, it's been a pleasure. It's yeah. been a great time, it's Nick. I appreciate it, Pierre. Oh, man. The two are amazing. You, you guys yeah. let me ramble. Oh, man. Fuck. You guys are rad. I appreciate it, Nick. I appreciate this. Probably will happen yeah. again. Probably will happen again. I'm, I'm hoping say. so. I must say. We got plenty of seasons. Absolutely. Plenty of seasons. That's great. Well, uh, you want to sign us out? I'm, I'm not doing, introducing our... That's the last thing, but certainly not least. Don't sleep, bitch. <laughs>